0: Hey, welcome everybody. Yeah, it's exciting to be together. It's exciting to worship God and whichever campus you're worshiping at today, Uh, whether you're up in Saratoga, over in Greenbush, in Half Moon, or at Latham, we're pumped that you're here. Hey, let me begin by asking for a show of hands if this has ever happened to you. I wonder how many of you have ever had what you thought were really good plans going and, and, and you'd prayed about it, you had made some detailed planning with this plan you have, you gave attention to detail, and like we talked about last weekend, you sought some wise counsel on this deal, so it wasn't some half-baked scheme you had, good plans, solid plans, and you even went beyond all that you kind of examined your own motives, all right? Because you wanted to be sure that your motives were at least somewhat noble for doing this. You went through all of that effort to make these plans and you launched out in that direction. If that's ever happened to you and it kind of blew up in your face or things went sour, would you raise your hand with me if anything like that's ever happened to you? Oh my goodness. Wow. This seems to be a universal issue. Well, I hope you'll be encouraged today when you realize that, you know what, this even happened to somebody as amazing as the Apostle Paul. So I want to get really practical, and I want to explore with you today from God's Word what we should do. We've done everything we know to understand and follow God's will. And then it just doesn't work out the way we had hoped that it would. So to get us started, we're going to start looking at some scripture. I think it's especially important before we get to the application part, and we will get there, trust me, but I think even more than usual today, it's important that we look at the context. So we're going to spend a little more time than usual just walking through some scriptures and then trust me, when we begin to apply it, I think you're going to see how incredibly relevant these lessons are. So here's the context. God had given Paul a fabulous game plan. He talks about it in Romans 15. He says, look, I plan to visit you Roman Christians on my way to Spain. But first of all, Paul, Paul's plan was to stop off at Jerusalem. Why was he going there? He was going to deliver a monetary gift that he had collected from some Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. You see? the folks in the area of Jerusalem and around Judea were going through some tough economic times, all right? So he wanted to drop the gift off, then go to Rome, meet all the Christians there, and use that as a base, a launch pad, if you will, to go to Spain. He'd never been to Spain before, and he wanted to plant churches as he went to Spain. That was his vision. That's his dream. That's his game plan. But now... I want to talk to you about why he wanted to do this. Because Paul's motives, and this is important for you to understand, when good plans kind of go sour, his motives were really noble. Awesome, in fact. What did he want to accomplish? First, he wanted to kind of strengthen relationships between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Because the tension between these two groups was real. Here's the deal. A lot of Jewish people had come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, but they didn't, they didn't detach themselves too much from a lot of the Old Testament laws. In other words, they'd still circumcised their sons on the eighth day. They still followed all the kosher dietary laws. They still followed all the high and holy holidays on the Jewish calendar. So in many ways, they're still living like Jews that didn't believe in Jesus. On the other hand, you had these Gentile Christians who've come to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they've come to believe that look we don't need to follow any of that Old Testament stuff. In other words, except the moral laws, we don't have to become Jews first. So we don't have to get into all those rituals and that kind of stuff. And so the tension between these two groups of Christians was very palpable. Kind of like the tension today between different groups of Christians whose convictions and preferences on certain issues are very, very real and it's kind of hard for them to get along. So Paul's hope was that, look, I collect this money from the Gentile Christians and I hope that that will melt some of these hardened, cynical hearts and that the Jewish believers around Jerusalem will say, wow, these Gentile brothers and sisters really care about us. Look at this money they've sent to us out of their own free will. Maybe they're not so bad after all. That was his first big objective. But Paul's second primary objective or motive was to start new churches. First and foremost, he was a church planter. Today, we would call this Frontier Missions. Paul always wanted to go where the gospel had never been preached before. He liked to be there first and open the way for the gospel plant churches, and leave these churches behind with leaders appointed so they could flourish. He believed God was calling him to go do that in Spain. That was his game plan. Strengthen relationships between Jewish and Gentile Christians, then go off to Spain and keep on planting churches. It was awesome. That was his dream. But now, let's talk about what actually happened. As Paul began to start off on this plan that he felt was God's will, he began to get these mixed messages and these mixed signals. People filled with the Holy Spirit, some of them with the legitimate gift of prophecy, began to say, Paul, we're not so sure about this game plan of yours. We think you should reconsider this. Now, push pause. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had what you felt was a confidence on the Holy Spirit's guiding in your life, and yet, you then had these Christians come along, some of them you really respected, and they started kind of questioning your plan and going, I'm not so sure that's the right way to go. It's confusing to say the least. So let's pick it up here in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is talking to the leaders in the church in Ephesus, and he tells them what he's about to do on his way to Jerusalem. And now compelled by the Spirit, in other words, Paul's fully convinced the Holy Spirit is compelling him to do this plan, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. It's actually kind of funny. Paul felt he hadn't really visited a city unless he had seen it from the inside of the jail there, okay? That's how accustomed he was to getting beaten up and thrown in prison. And so I think he expected that that would happen some more, just like it had happened in the past. But I don't think he thought at all that he would stay in prison for virtually the rest of his life. So let's check out what actually happened. He goes a little further, we get on into Acts 21. There's a number of stops. Then they stop in a city called Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and verse 4 of chapter 21 says, Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So this is kind of strange. Suddenly, a multitude of people through the Spirit are urging him, Paul, don't do this. Paul, we know your game plan, but please don't go to Jerusalem. Let's jump down to verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now note, Agabus is not saying, don't go to Jerusalem. He's just saying, look, if you do, this is what is going to happen to you, Apostle Paul. And I want you to see here, all the Christians, including Luke, are urging Paul not to go. Verse 12 reads, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice Luke, the human author of the book of Acts, is even including himself now in this. I also pleaded with Paul. Don't go through with this plan. Now, let's just push pause there. At this point, and I wish we had a small group here. I wish we had time to kind of sit around and kick this around in our group time. Maybe some of you can do that in your small group time. But you wonder, should we chide Paul for being foolish, or should we applaud him and praise him for being so tenacious that he's willing to go through with what he believes God wants him to do in spite of all of the urging otherwise. It's kind of hard to know. Should we praise him or challenge him? Let's hang on to that for a while. Verse 13, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, Luke writes here, I kind of like this. The way Luke puts it, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, when he wouldn't be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, what is going on here? Paul is convinced he's got a good game plan. Strengthen relationships, plant churches. Strengthen relationships, plant churches. Awesome plan, noble motives. But now, he's getting all these mixed messages from his friends and these other leaders. And folks, I want to tell you, life is like that sometimes. We've had a wonderful time in this God's Will series. Yet as we sit here today in week nine of it, the truth is, sometimes God's will is not always simple and crystal clear. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. Yeah. Sometimes it is just downright complex and that's what Paul is experiencing here. Now, I read a ton of Bible commentaries this week, and I want to tell you, the Bible scholars, the theologians are all over the map on exactly what's going on here. I'll leave it to you to decide whether we should praise Paul or blame him for what's about to unfold. But we need to go on a little further before we get to the application, so please hang with me here. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. So, in other words, he's gotten to Jerusalem now where he's going to drop off the monetary gift that he had collected. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Now, James here is the half-brother of Jesus. He was a very prominent leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When I was growing up in a little church in Tennessee, we would frequently have missionaries come through and give reports like this. They would usually have audiovisual presentations. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's going, look, this is what God is doing all over the Gentile world everywhere we go. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. In other words, to ignore the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, that statement was not totally true. When Paul found a Jewish person who came to believe in Jesus, he didn't say, don't follow those Old Testament laws. He said, you don't have to to follow the old civil laws and ceremonial laws, like we talked about a few weeks ago. Those are obsolete for the new covenant believer. But there was this rumor out there that Paul was this dude who was just going around dissing Judaism. He's putting down the temple. He's putting down Moses and the Old Testament law. And they were deeply upset about what they thought Paul was trying to do. And verse 22 reads, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. They saying, look, what are we going to do, Paul, about all these false rumors that are spreading about you? We see a lot of drama on the way. We see a big church fight about to unfold here. So to squelch this, we've got a brilliant plan, Paul. Verse 23, do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Now, the vow they're referring to, if you want to read about it, you can read Numbers chapter 6. It's called a Nazarite vow. What you did, as a way of showing super-duper dedication to God, you abstained from certain foods for a period of time. You abstained from anything made from grapes. That included wine and other things made from grapes. And you also let your hair grow out. You just didn't shave. You didn't cut your hair at all during this designated period of time. And at the end of it, you brought a special offering to the Lord and you had your head shaved. It was a way of saying, out of dedication to the Lord, I'm going to do this above and beyond sort of service. There were four guys who were getting ready to do this Nazarite vow thing. Verse 24, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses. I think they must have thought Paul was loaded because he had just brought a big monetary gift and dropped it off. So, they, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know, listen to what the elders are telling them, then everybody will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Now question, is this feeling a little fishy? Is this feeling a little morally questionable to you? It does to me, okay? Because it seems to me that they're trying to get Paul to do this so he can paint himself as something that he's not. Now, keep in mind, Paul did adjust his behavior on non-moral issues depending on who he was with. He said, I've become all things to all men so that all possible means I might save some. So when he was around Jewish people, he, he, he was careful to follow the kosher diet laws and stuff like that when he was with them. But when he was among Gentiles, he knew that didn't really matter. It's not a moral issue. He just wants to live in such a way that he can represent Jesus the best way possible. But he does it not out of hypocrisy, but completely out of a motivation of love. The truth is, Paul did not keep all of the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws of Judaism. That's the truth. But now, they're asking him to go ahead and send them this message. Oh, no, I keep all those things completely. No matter who I'm with or what the circumstances, and that seems to me that that would be an inaccurate message and possibly a bit hypocritical. But here's what blows me away, folks. Paul went along with their plan. Verse 26 and following. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the dude. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. In other words, the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. And then Luke adds parenthetically, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Now, folks, you need to understand, you could not bring a Gentile into the temple in this day. And if you did, that was punishable by death. So all these rumors are floating around among the Jews and among Jewish Christians that Paul is not only telling Gentiles that you don't have to become a Jew first, but there's also a rumor that he's telling Jews who are right with God that they can just ditch the Old Testament completely. And now they think he's brought a Gentile into the Holy Temple, and so they are furious with Paul. So they grab him. They begin to beat him up. They've got him stretched out, ready to flog him severely. And then Paul, as he sometimes did, pulled out his Roman citizenship card and said, are you going to do this to a Roman citizen? They said, oh, no. And so they stopped. And what pursues here, we won't read anymore, is a whole series of speeches and trials. And Paul is under arrest and moved from pillar to post for a long, long time. But here's what I want you to catch before we get to the application. Here's what I want you to really get about what actually happened. Not only is there confusion here about what God's exact game plan is, not only is there this weird story and what seems to be a moral compromise regarding the Nazarite vow deal, but then instead of going to Spain and planting churches, which was his dream, Paul spends virtually the rest of his life as a prisoner. There's only a tiny little period where he's not actually in jail. But the vast majority of the rest of his life, he's a prisoner. He never gets to go to Spain and plant another church. And finally, he ends up in Rome in the Mamertine dungeon. And he is ultimately, according to legend, there's pretty strong oral tradition for this, beheaded under the command of Nero, the Roman emperor. Houston, we have a problem. You talk about a good plan that has gone sour. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, you ought to be asking, uh, what happened? What happened here? He's got a solid game plan. He's got God-honoring motives. I mean, think about how good his motives are. He's going to give money to Jewish Christians who are actually trashing his reputation. You don't get any more like Jesus than that, returning good for evil. And then, just like we talked about last week, Paul had sought wise counsel. He had listened to the advice of James and the elders in Jerusalem. It seems he's doing everything right, and it blows up in his face. He never gets to fulfill his dream. He never gets to start another church. He never gets to Spain. And he spends virtually the rest of his life in prison. Now, again, if we had a small group going, I would love to ask you and wait for your response because Bible scholars and many Christians I've talked to are all over the map on who dropped the ball here. It sure seems like somebody dropped the ball. This didn't turn out well, it seems, at least on first glance. And so the three major theories are these. One theory is that no one dropped the ball. No one messed up at all. In spite of how fishy some of this looks, in spite of the questions it raises in our minds about compromise and so on and hypocrisy, things unfolded unfolded perfectly as God had planned them. The only problem is that Paul had some wrong assumptions in his mind about what his future was going to look like. So that's one theory. Nobody messed up. Nobody dropped the ball. A second theory is that Paul dropped the ball here. He's in this mess because of his own idiotic actions. He should have never made that compromise, and he would never have incited a riot, and he would have never gotten arrested. Paul brought it all on himself. That's one theory, a second theory. And finally, a third theory is that the elders dropped the ball. That the real people to blame here was this group of leaders in Jerusalem who it seemed wanted peace at any cost. And so they wanted peace so badly that they urged Paul to this hypocritical compromise when they told him to join in the purification rite with the other four men. Now, I don't know what you believe, and I'll, again, leave that to your judgment on how to respond. But in the bottom line, it doesn't really matter, does it? Whether it was God's plan all along, whether Paul dropped the ball, whether the elders dropped the ball, guess what? Paul is still in prison. Paul is still in prison. And I want you to write this little phrase down. How you respond. Please write this down. Thank you for going with me through the tedious part of the message. All these scriptures. But I felt that was important to set the context. Because if you don't realize how profound this dilemma was, I don't think you can appreciate the lessons that we draw. How you respond to adversity is more important than how you got there. How you respond is more important than how you got there. I did not say that how you got there is not important. What I said is how you respond is more important. This is such an important principle of life, folks. I would want all of us to really etch this on our soul today. It's much more important how you respond to adversity, whatever hardship you're in, than to try to figure out all the nuances of how you got there. So I want to talk to you now about how wise people respond to hardships as we go down home stretch and apply this lesson. Before we look at these three applications, <laughs> I just want to tell you a couple of things I know about you. You're going to have some hardships on your life that you bring on yourself. You can just take that to the bank. You can just mark that down. You and I are going to have some hardships in our lives that we bring on ourselves through our sin, through our stubbornness, through our disobedience, you're being you, me being me. We're going to create these problems and hardships and pain in our lives. Just count on it. You say, well, but Jesus will forgive me. Yes, he will. But you need to understand that while he forgives us of the eternal consequences of our sin, and there's no more condemnation for us ever when he forgives us, he does not typically take away all the earthly consequences when we bring hardship on ourselves. He's never promised to take away all the earthly consequences of that. When Moses sinned by killing the Egyptian taskmaster... He could get forgiven for that, and I'm sure he did, but it cost him big time. When David sinned by having sex with a woman who was not his wife, it cost him big time. God forgave him, of course. Read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 32. But he lived with the repercussions of that for the rest of his life. When Peter said, oh, Jesus, I don't think I know the man. He went out and wept bitterly. The Lord forgave him, but he still had repercussions of that in this life. I hope you understand this principle. And we will do some things where we will live with some earthly consequences. The second reality is that you and I will experience some hardships that we did not cause and that we don't deserve. I call this getting caught in the backwash of somebody else's sin. And some of you right now are there. You're experiencing that right now. Some of you right this moment are in the middle of hardships that you don't deserve and that you did not directly bring on through your own sin. Those two realities, folks, you can just take to the bank. Trust me, those things are going to be true of every single one of us. So how do we respond when we find ourselves in those kinds of situations? Here's the first thing. Wise people tend to focus on the road ahead more than the rear view mirror. Wise people tend to focus on the road ahead more than the rear view mirror. Unwise people churn and spew, why me? Why this? Why now? What happened? Wise people ask, what's the next step, Lord? what do you have next for me? Now, I don't know where you are today, if you're riding a wave of success or if you're crashing down to the bottom, but I do know this, the most important question you can ask today, this week, this month, this year, is what's the next step, Lord? That's the question you need to be asking. Get your eyes on the road ahead when you find yourself in the midst of hardships where good plans seem to have gone sour. Now, is there ever a time to look in the rearview mirror? You bet. It helps a little bit with perspective. But if you keep your eyes on the rearview mirror, you're going to crash. you got to get your eyes on the road ahead. I know several people right now in our church family who are going through painful divorces. And most people I know who go through something like that, they churn inside like, why did he do this to me? Why did she treat me that way? And on and on and on. But the most important question is, Lord, what next? Get your eyes on the road ahead. Some of you are in a financial mess. And for some of you, it may be decisions you made, stupid decisions. You didn't do due diligence or you yoked up with someone who just wasn't trustworthy in their character. It may be because of selfish or greedy decisions you made that you're in the fix you're in. For others of you, you may have had nothing to do with it. It may have something to do with something that happened on the other side of the world that affected the market or your particular industry. But it really doesn't matter in the end because the question is, what next? Lord, what's the next step for me here? Some of you are having a relationship crisis. You thought that person was the one. You dreamed this was all going to work out, and suddenly it blew up right in your face out of the blue. And you've been left wondering, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? The most important question is, what's the next step, Lord? What's next for me? If there's anything you take home from this message, I would want it to be this. No matter what you're going through, no matter how it was caused or what got you to where you are, the most important question you could ask is, what is the next step, Lord? Get your eyes on the road ahead because walking with God, as we learned in the very first message, is a journey. And ask the Lord what the next step is for you. But there's a second thing about how wise people respond when they find themselves with good plans that have kind of gone sideways. Wise people look for the open door of opportunity inherent in every crisis. I don't know a single word of Chinese. So if you know some Chinese, I hope you'll tell me if this is true or not after the service today, all right? But I have read... In articles, books, I have heard it in motivational speeches through the years over and over again. Here's what I've heard, that the Chinese word for crisis is the same word for opportunity. Now, again, that may be a bunch of motivational baloney as far as I know, because I don't know a single word of Chinese. But if that's true, that's pretty cool. And whether it's true or not, hear me, I know it's true in life. In every crisis, there is an opportunity. So wise people look for the opportunity in the crisis or the hardship they're going through. Apostle Paul was marvelous with this. When you read his story, all the way along as he found himself in jail, he's serving God. He's looking for the opportunities to represent Jesus well. For instance, I told you he was in prison virtually the rest of his life but he made the most of it. During his imprisonment, he wrote at least these four letters, some scholars think more, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And some believe he wrote 1 and 2 Timothy, certainly 2 Timothy, when he was in the Mamertine dungeon. And in addition to writing Scripture, he also shared Christ verbally. For instance, he writes in Philippians and he was under house arrest when he wrote Philippians. He was, in, he was a jailbird. He was in prison. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's not what you would expect. You would expect Paul's in prison, the gospel advance stops, but no, for Paul, because he looked for the opportunity and the hardship, it simply meant a more strategic way to share the gospel, because he was guarded by the praetorian guard, the elite guard of Caesar. Guess what? He started winning them to Christ. And so you had the gospel going right into Caesar's palace in very strategic places. So, brothers and sisters, in every crisis, hear me today. You got a choice. You can either be broken. You can be bitter. You can be bent out of shape. Or you can allow God to make you better. Wise people, look for the inherent opportunity that is in every single crisis. Third and finally in the midst of hardships what do wise people do wise people cooperate with god to bring a redemptive purpose out of the hardship now i hear a ridiculous error parroted all the time here's here's the error i hear this is absolute garbage good always comes out of bad you ever heard that i hear it regularly good Always comes out of bad. That is absolute garbage. Hear me today. Good comes out of bad when we cooperate with God. Now, that's the truth. If you don't cooperate with God, all that may come out of bad is more bad. But good comes out of bad when we cooperate with God. Consider Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called... According to his purpose. What does it mean to love God? Jesus defined that as obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So, when God shows us our next step, our job is to take it. To do what he's directing us to do. That's what I mean by cooperating with God. And when we do that, trust me, God Can bring good out of bad. He can bring a redemptive purpose out of any hardship. And that's what blows me away about Paul. As you read his story, even though he's a prisoner virtually the rest of his life, he just keeps on doing the right thing. He keeps on loving his enemies. He keeps on returning good for evil. He keeps on praying. He keeps on loving people. He keeps on cooperating with God. He keeps on sharing the gospel. He keeps on trusting that God's got a plan, even in the midst of these hardships. And you know what? Uh, There's a very inspiring story in Acts 27 about a shipwreck. And the Roman soldiers on board are about to kill all the prisoners. And Paul's one of those prisoners. He's about to be killed. But because of his exemplary behavior, cooperating with God, doing the right thing. The Roman centurion said, don't touch Paul and don't touch any of these prisoners. I've learned from this man that God is up to something here. That's the kind of impact Paul had. And even when they get on the island, he keeps on doing the right thing. And he has such a stellar track record and such an impression on the Roman centurion when they get to Rome, even though he's still a prisoner, I want you to notice in Acts 28, verse 16, what it was like. When we got to Rome, Luke writes, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Live by himself? In his own rented house? Yeah. He's still a prisoner. He can't come and go as he pleases. But boy, I guess if you got to be a prisoner, that's the way to go, right? And then the last two verses of the book of Acts paint this picture. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. The Greek word akalitos means unhindered. He was just free to preach and teach the word of God. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the bottom line here? You ever had some really good plans that kind of went sideways? What should you do when that happens? When you wanna phone up heaven and go, Houston, we got a problem. I don't know what's happening, but man, this is getting awfully confusing. When that occurs, wise people, wise people, keep on trusting God. They keep on doing the right thing. Wise people Look for that opportunity in the midst of the crisis. Wise people, keep on cooperating with God, knowing that he is still in charge and gonna use even this calamity for his glory and for our good. What is the next step God has for you today? I'm convinced that God's will for you is gonna be awesome or it may not be everything you thought it would be I don't think Paul's future was everything he thought it would be but it's awesome because he is gonna use you to bring glory to his name if you'll simply cooperate with him father help us to be that kind of people and to learn from this really weird story in your word one that makes us at times scratch our heads and wonder, what's going on here? But help us to take away the example of Paul's life that we keep on trusting in you, keep on looking to you, even when we feel confused about what is exactly your game plan. Hallelujah. Thank you for the ways you guide us. and We commit ourselves anew to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.